is here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hello, everybody. Mark Levin here. Our number, 877 877-381-3811. If there was ever any doubt that the Democrat Party and the media despise the state of Israel, then today should quash those doubts. It was very painful. I started watching MSLSD this afternoon, and they were trashing President Trump. They were trashing his decision. They were going on and on about how this will lead to violence, that it's not right. They cherry-picked the guests that they were bringing on and so forth. I watched this clown, Nicole Wallace, who her whole life was a Republican, but now as an independent, uh, she hated Sarah Palin, even though she worked on that campaign with McCain. Uh, she hates Donald Trump. And in order to, uh, to get a payday and a host on MSLSD, she's a complete sellout. But in addition to that, she's dumb and she's nasty. And, of course, these are some of the elements that are required to work at that station, on that network. For a host. Her treatment of the ambassador from Israel to the United States, Ron Dermer, was disgusting. And I'm going to have Mr. Dermer on this program at the bottom of the hour. Will he be treated with some respect? But Nicole Wallace is there trying to score points. Chris Wallace yesterday doing exactly the same thing. It is a conga line of Israel haters and Trump haters. That's what it is. Now, I want you to keep something in mind. MSNBC is tied at the hip, attached at the hip, with NBC. NBC. So this is a supposed news outlet. Now, many of you who actually work in pay taxes, and you didn't have time to hear President Trump at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, you're going to get to hear him now. I want you to hear what he had to say. This has to be one of the most historic speeches, one of the most historic speeches, period. And what he did today... Take it from somebody now who's been to Israel. What he did today will be remembered for a thousand years in the state of Israel. It will be recorded by their historians. That's how important it was. So the short shrift or worse that he's getting from the media today, you have to reject it. You have to reject it. Let's begin. Donald Trump at the White House today. Cut one, go. When I came into office, I promised to look at the world's challenges with open eyes and very fresh thinking. We cannot solve our problems by making the same failed assumptions and repeating the same failed strategies of the past. Old challenges demand new approaches. My announcement today marks the beginning of a new approach to conflict between Israel and the Palestinians. In 1995, Congress adopted the Jerusalem Embassy Act, urging the federal government to relocate the American embassy to Jerusalem and to recognize that that city, and so importantly, is Israel's capital. This act passed Congress by an overwhelming bipartisan majority and was reaffirmed by unanimous vote of the Senate only six 
months ago. Yet for over 20 years, every previous American president has exercised the law's waiver, refusing to move the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem or to recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital city. Presidents issued these waivers under the belief that delaying the recognition of Jerusalem would advance the cause of peace. Some say they lacked courage, but they made their best judgment based on facts as they understood them at the time. Nevertheless, the record is in. After more than two decades of waivers, we are no closer to a lasting peace agreement between Israel and the Palestinians. It would be folly to assume that repeating the exact same formula would now produce a different or better result. Therefore, I have determined that it is time to officially recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. While previous presidents have made this a major campaign promise, they failed to deliver. Today, I am delivering. I've judged this course of action to be in the best interests of the United States of America and the pursuit of peace between Israel and the Palestinians. So every modern president, ladies and gentlemen, has campaigned on this, as he points out. Every one of them. Democrat and Republican, including Obama. Congress passes this statute, the Jerusalem Embassy Act, in 1995. It was passed with 90 Democrat votes, excuse me, 90 Senate votes in the United States Senate, including Dianne Feinstein. I'll get to that later. And it is overwhelmingly supported. And now the president has acted on it. And he's being attacked by the Democrats. He's being attacked by their surrogates in the media. He's being attacked by the Arab states. He's being attacked by the European states. But over time, some of them will come around. Because what Trump did was historic. For things to be historic, for a man to be a statesman, you don't go along with the common mentality or the mindset that exists. You make decisions that are prudential. You make decisions that are righteous. Whatever the politics. Whatever the politics. Donald Trump has done more in this one action to support the state of Israel than virtually any other president of the United States, bar probably Nixon. But historically, as an ancestral matter, And as a matter that will be remembered a thousand years from now, particularly in the state of Israel, this will be considered the greatest president that Israel's ever known. And it was courageous what Trump did, not because it is exceptional in and of itself. It's courageous, because listen to the uh, objections in this country. The very people who voted for this statute, politics first, party first, are attacking him, saying he's changed, he's changed American policy, really. And tell me, when Barack Obama sold out America to Iran, did he change America's policy? Yes. 
When Obama destroyed our health care system, did he change America's policy? Yes. <clears throat> they don't mind that. Not in the least. But the Democrats, like the media, are all coming out of the closet now. They're revealing themselves. They're revealing themselves. Cut to go. This is a long overdue step to advance the peace process and to work towards a lasting agreement. Israel is a sovereign nation with the right, like every other sovereign nation, to determine its own capital. Acknowledging this is a fact is a necessary condition for achieving peace. It was 70 years ago that the United States, under President Truman, recognized the state of Israel. Ever since then, Israel has made its capital in the city of Jerusalem, the capital the Jewish people established in ancient times. Over 3,000 years ago. Over 3,000 years ago. You know, North Korea will not recognize the capital of South Korea. It will not recognize Seoul as the capital of South Korea. We recognize Seoul as the capital of South Korea. The UN does. MSNBC does. CNN does. NBC does. The New York Times does. The Washington Post does. Why? Does that, does that help us with peace with North Korea? Anyway, go ahead. Jerusalem is the seat of the modern Israeli government. It is the home of the Israeli parliament, the Knesset, as well as the Israeli Supreme Court. It is the location of the official residence of the prime minister and the president. It is the headquarters of many government ministries. For decades, visiting American presidents, secretaries of state, and military leaders have met their Israeli counterparts in Jerusalem, as I did on my trip to Israel earlier this year. Jerusalem is not just the heart of three great religions, but it is now also the heart of one of the most successful democracies in the world. Over the past seven decades, the Israeli people have built a country where Jews, Muslims, and Christians, and people of all faiths are free to live and worship according to their conscience and according to their beliefs. Jerusalem is today and must remain a place where Jews pray at the Western Wall, where Christians walk the Stations of the Cross, and where Muslims worship at Al-Aqsa Mosque. However, through all of these years, presidents representing the United States have declined to officially recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital. In fact, we have declined to acknowledge any Israeli capital at all. But today we finally acknowledge the obvious, that Jerusalem is Israel's capital. Cut three, Mr. Producer. Go. This is nothing more or less than a recognition of reality. It is also the right thing to do. It's something that has to be done. That is why, consistent with the Jerusalem Embassy Act, I am also directing the State Department to begin preparation 
to move the American embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. This will immediately begin the process of hiring architects, engineers, and planners so that a new embassy, when completed, will be a magnificent tribute to peace. In making these announcements, I also want to make one point very clear. This decision is not intended in any way to reflect a departure from our strong commitment to facilitate a lasting peace agreement. We want an agreement that is a great deal for the Israelis and a great deal for the Palestinians. We are not taking a position of any final status issues, including the specific boundaries of the Israeli sovereignty in Jerusalem or the resolution of contested borders. Those questions are up to the parties involved. The United States remains deeply committed to helping facilitate a peace agreement that is acceptable to both sides. I intend to do everything in my power to help forge such an agreement. Without question, Jerusalem is one of the most sensitive issues in those talks. The United States would support a two-state solution if agreed to by both sides. In the meantime, I call on all parties to maintain the status quo at Jerusalem's holy sites, including the Temple Mount, also known as Haram al-Sharif. Above all, our greatest hope is for peace, the universal yearning in every human soul. Now, ladies and gentlemen, Democrats like Dianne Feinstein, Feinstein, Bernie Sanders, I say as a Jew, these are Jews, but they're Democrats first and they're leftists first. Washington Free Beacon, Feinstein urges Trump not to move U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem despite voting to move the embassy to Jerusalem. Is that not incredible? Yes, it's incredible. Hillary Clinton had called for an undivided Jerusalem in her policy paper in 2008. Nancy Pelosi was an original co-sponsor of a House resolution calling upon the President and Secretary of State to affirm publicly as a matter of U.S. policy that Jerusalem must remain the undivided capital of Israel back in 1997. Minority Leader Chuck Schumer at the time of New York, someone who strongly believes that Jerusalem is the undivided capital of Israel, I'm calling for the U.S. Embassy in Israel to be relocated to Jerusalem said that in 2017, October. What's interesting is he had no influence on Obama or Hillary Clinton. 1995, Schumer stated it was embarrassing to have to go to Tel Aviv to reach the U.S. Embassy. Feinstein, in 1995, we will send word that Israel, like every country in the world, has the sovereign right to designate its capital and to have the capital recognized by the nations of the world. She said that in 1995. Sherrod Brown. Sherrod Brown, in 2012, the Democratic National Convention made the important move to reaffirm our belief that Israel's the capital, excuse me, Jerusalem's the capital of Israel. Ben Cardin, another Jewish gentleman and a complete lightweight. 
in 2010. Jerusalem is the undivided capital of the state of Israel. Joe Manchin, same thing. Kirsten Gillibrand, same thing. Chris Murphy, same thing. Governor Cuomo, same thing. DNC Chairwoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz, same thing. The Newark mayor at the time, Cory Booker, same thing, even though now he's opposed. Joe Biden, same thing. Now they're all cautious and concerned. I'll be right back. We will have Israel's ambassador to the United States, Ron Durham, enormously intelligent, articulate gentleman who knows all about this. By the way, originally born in Miami, Florida. And his brother was the Democrat mayor of Miami, Florida for some time, as was his late father. Uh, but he's a very, very close advisor to uh, the Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu. And it uh, just seems to me, ladies and gentlemen, all these Democrats, all the media now, really troubled by this. They so despise Donald Trump. This is where they go. And I'll tell you something else. Obama not only didn't have the guts to do this, Obama was busy funding the Iranians. I'll be right back. Conservative. No ifs, ands, or buts. Call in at 877-381-3811. Well, it's an honor to have on the program the ambassador to the United States from Israel, Ron Dermer. How are you, sir? Uh, it's a great day, Mark. Thank you for having me on your show. Truly it, historic day. It really is a great historic day. Will you tell everybody why that's the case, please? Well, because Jerusalem has been the capital of Jewish people for 3,000 years. Uh, you know, King David was the one who made it our capital 3,000 years ago. And it has been, it was the center of uh, the Jewish people's political and national life for over a 1,000 years. And after we were in exile, it was really the center of the Jewish people's hopes and dreams uh, that we kept saying year after year, next year in Jerusalem. And it kept us, uh, kept our hopes alive through a very long and difficult uh, exile where we were subject to pretty much every evil under the sun. And it's also been the capital of the modern Jewish state for the last 70 years. Uh, and it's something as to be an ambassador, to have the privilege to serve as an ambassador to the United States uh, on the day when President Trump uh, becomes the president to finally recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital. And as I said, uh, and something I sent out right after the speech, he, he takes an honored place alongside President Truman, who was the first uh, president, the first world leader to recognize the state of Israel 70 years ago. Uh, president Trump will take an honored place uh, in our people's history and in our state's history. And we're very deeply grateful for his leadership and his courageous leadership to make uh, such a decision against, as you saw and you heard, uh, almost every leader around the world. And that's why I think it's, a, it's an act of great political courage, and we're very grateful for it. And um, I can only imagine, uh, are you in the United States or are you in Israel right now? I am in the United States, in Washington, your capital, and we were hoping for reciprocity. Uh, I'm a Jerusalemite. I, I, I live in Jerusalem and uh, uh, have our family and our home in Jerusalem. And uh, I was threatening for a while that if you don't move the capital, we're going to move uh, our embassy to New York. 
Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe that's what worked. I don't know. But we are just uh, we're just very pleased. And you heard the prime minister also uh, respond to President Trump's uh, uh, speech uh, to just say the Jewish people and the Jewish state will be eternally grateful. And uh, there's a real sense of celebration uh, and rejoicing in Israel today. Is it likely, by the way, Russia recognized Jerusalem as Israel's capital last spring, did they not? Well, Russia said something that wasn't entirely clear about West Jerusalem, but they also mentioned East Jerusalem for the Palestinians. So that was actually much more complicated. What President Trump did here is he just recognized Jerusalem as Israel's capital. He said, I'm not prejudging negotiations or boundaries, even within Jerusalem. That's for the parties to decide. But I'm recognizing Jerusalem as the capital. And I know there's been a lot of talk about this somehow undermines peace. Well, it would only undermine peace if somebody thinks there is a peace deal at some point that can be put on the table where Jerusalem would not be Israel's capital. And that, and that's not going to happen. There's all sorts of ideas that I've seen about peace agreements. But I've never seen a peace agreement that's put down on the table that suggested uh, Israel would not have its capital in Jerusalem. I don't think it, it actually undermines peace at all. I think it advances speech, uh, peace because it punctures all the lies, uh, all the denials of the Jewish people's claims in Jerusalem that the Palestinians tried to, um, try to push through the international community. There was a decision by UNESCO, uh, uh, a, a UN organization last year to deny any historical connection between the Jews and Jerusalem. You remember that terrible decision at the UN Security Council at the end of last year which essentially said that the Western Wall is occupied Palestinian territory. Mm-hmm. Those are the types of things that actually set back the cause of peace. Speaking truth, recognizing reality, actually advances peace in the Middle East, and we're very pleased that he did so. You know, there may be a number of people in this audience who are not familiar with some of the Jewish holy sites in East Jerusalem. Can you tell us what some of these holy sites are and why they're holy? Well, the Temple Mount, a lot of people sometimes mistakenly say I, the Western Wall, which I think is uh, is known throughout the world, that that's the holiest site of Jerusalem. That's not the holiest site. That's where Jews pray. And the reason they pray before the wall is that was an external wall where the Jewish temple once stood. The reason why it's called the Temple Mount is because both of our temples stood on that mount. That is the holiest site in Judaism. It's a site, according to Jewish tradition, where the story of the... Uh, of the near sacrifice of Isaac took place, uh, and many other things that happened in Jewish tradition, and that was the site that David uh, chose, and Solomon eventually built the first Jewish temple there. That temple stood for many, many centuries until the Babylonians in the 6th century B.C. destroyed it. David was about 1,000 B.C., um, and the second temple was also built there, and that stood for hundreds of years until the Romans destroyed it. So Jerusalem, as I say, was always the center uh, of our national and political life and, and religious life as well. There was only one place where you could perform all these religious rites, and that was uh, in Jerusalem. So it has been in our prayers. Those of your listeners who have been to a Jewish wedding uh, will know that at the end the groom stamps his foot on a glass. The reason why he does that is to remember the destruction of those temples in Jerusalem, which stood on the Temple Mount. If they've been at a at a morning house, a house of mourning, Jerusalem is always mentioned on our way out the door. So this is part of uh, uh, not only the history of the Jewish people, but really the soul of the Jewish people. And to have the world deny us the right that they've given every other nation on earth, every nation in the world has its capital recognized except Jerusalem. 
which is older as far as I know than any other capital on Earth. So the oldest capital, the one that has the strongest connection to the people who are in it, that's the capital that was not recognized until today um, by President Trump. And I think this is something that will be remembered not for decades, not even for centuries, but for millennia. That's an important point. This will be remembered, especially in Israel, especially in the Middle East. Your historians will definitely be writing about this. And well, a thousand you, years... Mark, a th- a th- yeah, go ahead. I don't know if the Persians remember Cyrus, but we remember Cyrus. Of course. The Jewish people remember Cyrus because some 2,500 years ago, a Persian leader allowed the Jews to go rebuild the Second Temple in Jerusalem. That was giving the Jews religious freedom and religious independence, but not political independence. This is something is our political rights to have our capital in Jerusalem. It's a historic, uh, historic day that I think, uh, obviously, we are very grateful for, but I think it's something that should make all the American people proud that their president decided uh, to take this uh, historic step today. And he took this historic step, a step that was encouraged by our Congress and has been for over 20 years, in a law that Congress passed overwhelmingly, both parties. It's something that every candidate who's run for president in modern times has said they would do. And this is the first president to do it. Now, he'll be remembered, your point is, and I believe this is absolutely true, for a thousand years in Jerusalem, won't he? Uh, absolutely. And uh, it was an act of courage. And there's always reasons why people didn't do it, and there were good men who were in that office, and they probably had good reason, and people came to them probably with warnings of, you know, potential violence or it was going to undermine peace or this was not the right time. Your listeners should know that when President Truman made his decision to recognize the state of Israel, he did it, did it against the wishes of Secretary of State George Marshall, who was uh, a great figure in World War II and has the, the, the famous Marshall Plan that did so much good to rebuild Europe. But on the issue of Israel, he was wrong. And uh, President Truman overruled him and did the right thing. And today people look back and appreciate the fact that President Truman made this historic decision. I think even though there's a lot of disputes over a lot of issues in your country, I think with time people will look back uh, and they will remember and actually take great pride in this remarkable decision. And I, I want to – you mentioned the Jerusalem Embassy Act that was passed uh, over 20 years ago. I, I'll read you something from the Israeli prime minister says this, that we differ in our opinions left and right. We disagree on the means and the objective. In Israel, we all agree on one issue, the wholeness of Jerusalem, the continuation of its existence as capital of the state of Israel. There are no two Jerusalems. There is only one Jerusalem. For us, Jerusalem is not subject to compromise, and there is no peace without Jerusalem. The prime minister who said those words was Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin that is seen as an icon of the effort to advance peace. He said them in Washington 22 years ago, two days after the passage of that act in Congress. And I think that expresses the overwhelming sentiment within Israel on Jerusalem. It's not left and right. We're united, and it's, like I said, a day of great rejoicing within Israel. And uh, after the Six-Day War, after the 1967 war, um when your country retook Jerusalem. What did you find there? What, what had happened to the synagogues and the other places uh, of, of, of import to the Jews in, uh, in Jerusalem? Well, they were all destroyed, and it's a part of history that people don't remember. 
um, Jerusalem, uh, Jerusalem under Israel's control, that's been the only time when actually the rights of all religions and all the religious holy sites have been protected. A Christian site, Muslim site, uh, and of course Jewish sites. But in the years where Israel was not in control, and the period you're specifically talking about is after the 1948 war, um, we had a ceasefire with the Arabs, and at the end of that ceasefire, we controlled what is referred to many pe- by many people as West Jerusalem, and the Jordanians occupied East Jerusalem, which includes the old city of Jerusalem, where all of these holy sites are. And what happened is the Jordanians prevented both Christians and Jews from worshiping at their holy sites. There were many restrictions on their access, not just for Jews, but also for Christians, but also destroyed all dozens and dozens of synagogues that were in the old city and actually took some of the headstones of the Mount of Olives, the most famous cemetery in the world, and used them to pave the train uh, in an officer's house. So there was no respect, no respect for the religious sites of others. And Israel is proud of our commitment to that. It will never change. The Prime Minister reiterated today that we will respect the religious status quo and we will ensure that religious sites are open to all. Look at what's happening in the Middle East. When you have ISIS go and other extremist groups go into an area, they blow up the religious sites of others. I mean, thank God that Israel is in control of Jerusalem and protecting the religious sites uh, of all and freedom of worship for all, or else you'd really create a tinderbox in the Middle East, and we are, take our responsibility very seriously, and this speech does not change that at all. Now, uh, Ambassador Dermer, I assume you've done a number of media interviews, and if you have, what kind of uh, reaction are you getting from the media in this country? Uh, well, you know, it's mixed. Uh, unfortunately, it's, like many issues uh, in your country, things get a little bit politicized. Uh, some people think it's, uh, it's a blow uh, to the efforts to advance peace. I, I disagree with that assessment. Uh, but I think if you go past the media and you go directly to the people, I think if there was a vote on the American people of recognizing Jerusalem as Israel's capital, it would have passed in 1949, in 1959, 1969, 79, 89, and every year uh, over the last 69 years. So I think this actually reflects overwhelming support uh, among the American people to do th- to do it. Um, and I just uh, I, I can't thank President Trump enough for making this courageous decision, you know, and we're, we're soon to be in the holiday of, of Hanukkah, the Jewish holiday of Hanukkah, where we light these menorahs. That is the ultimate holiday of courage, where few people stood against the many, and they won their sovereignty and won their independence, the Maccabees, won sovereignty and won independence against mighty forces. The, uh, the president is the most powerful person in the world, but he had to stand up to a lot of, a lot of uh, opposition. And a lot of forces who oppose this, and I really appreciate him being a Maccabee today and standing with Israel, and I think it's going to echo uh, for generations and generations to come. That's really profound. You're calling him a Maccabee today, and I think that's right. Ambassador Dermer, have a happy Hanukkah in a few weeks, you and your family, and God bless. Thank you. Happy Hanukkah and Merry Christmas to all your listeners. All right. God bless. You know, he's a great ambassador for Israel to the United States is another great ambassador or from Israel to the United States and we have one our United States ambassador to Israel David Friedman uh, we have a, a, a number of you know real statesmen in positions who are able to affect this decision Dermer Friedman 
the Vice President of the United States, who has been pushing for this for years and years and years, Mike Pence, who is a, a man of deep faith and evangelical Christian. We have the President of the United States, Donald Trump, who campaigned on this and kept his word, even when I had questions about it six months ago. And I was wrong. He kept his word. And that's why he's under attack today. What did I say the other day? They're not upset about his tweets. They're not upset about his mannerisms. They're not upset about his language. They're upset about the content of what he's doing. He's the most conservative president since Reagan. And he did something here that Reagan didn't even do. My hero. I'll be right back. Mark More coming up. Hope you'll stick with us. Not many colleges can claim that they're 100% financially independent from both federal and state governments. In fact, I can think of only one college in the entire country that refuses government funding of every kind. Not one penny. Hillsdale College. Now, why? Because government money comes with strings. And Hillsdale refuses to have government bureaucrats dictate what and how they must teach or run their campus. From the beginning in 1844... When James Polk, a great president, was president, Hillsdale has provided a world-class education that upholds America's founding principles and preserves the blessings of civil and religious liberty. Everything Hillsdale does, from the financial aid that 97% of its students receive to the completely free online courses it offers you, depends on generous donors who recognize the worth of independence. Financial freedom preserves the integrity and excellence of the Hillsdale liberal arts education attracting the nation's brightest students and scores of fields of study. From music to biology to business, Hillsdale College teaches their students to pursue truth and defend liberty. Learn more about how Hillsdale College helps all of us become better, more independent citizens, and how you can help Hillsdale further freedom at levinforhillsdale.com. That's L-E-V-I-N, levinforhillsdale.com. I want to mention another person. I can't mention everybody, who has been dogged. Actually, I'm going to mention two on Capitol Hill who've been dogged in pushing this effort. Ron DeSantis of Florida. I've gotten to know him. He's really, really a solid, decent, good guy. And they don't come any more principled and conservative than he And he chairs a subcommittee, and they held a hearing last month, and I attended it quietly, sat in the front row or the second row or whatever it was, where he was pressing the case. And also, in the Senate, Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz has been a steadfast advocate of what took place today for years. And others deserve mention, too. But those of you out there listening to this program, you don't have to be Jewish. There's many, many Gentiles who support this. And as a matter of fact, if it wasn't for Gentiles, specifically, if it wasn't for Christians, this wouldn't have happened. If it wasn't for the President of the United States, who's Christian, this would not have happened. If it wasn't for the Vice President of the United States, who is Christian, this wouldn't have happened. If it wasn't for certain members of Congress, like two that I mentioned, who are Christians, 
this would not have happened because I know that one of the greatest forces in support of not just America and American history and American culture, but Israel and Israel's history and Israel's culture are Christians. Evangelical Christians. Christians of faith. Then I got to listen to Diane Feinstein and Bernie Sanders who disgust me. They disgust me to my core. Trust me. I'll be right back. From the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hello everybody, Mark Levin here. Our number 877-381-3811, 877-381-3811. It's amazing, the network news that I'm compelled to listen to in my headphones. They start off with what a Palestinian spokesman has to say about all this. Not an American spokesman, not an Israeli spokesman, because the media want, let me be blunt, violence. They want violence, they want rioting, they want an intifada, they want war, they want ratings. This is what the media are all about. All these predictions of what was going to take place. This is what the media want. They want violence. They want war. They want to say that Trump caused it. No more that uh, partisanship ends at the water's edge. No, 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 no. No. And you know what? History will remember, if it remembers anything else, with respect to these people, their names. Their names. Benjamin Netanyahu, here's what he had to say about what the President of the United States did today. Go ahead. This is a historic day. Jerusalem has been the capital of the Jewish people for 3,000 years. It's been the capital of Israel for nearly 70 years. It was here that our temples stood, our kings ruled, our prophets preached. Jerusalem has been the focus of our hopes, our dreams, our prayers for three millennia. From every corner of the earth, our people yearn to return to Jerusalem, to touch its golden stones, to walk its hallowed streets. So it's rare to be able to speak of new and genuine milestones in the glorious history of this city. Yet today's pronouncement by President Trump is such an occasion. We're profoundly grateful for the President for his courageous and just decision to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and to prepare for the opening of the U.S. Embassy here. This decision reflects the President's commitment to an ancient but enduring truth, to fulfilling his promises and to advancing peace. The President's decision is an important step towards peace, for there is no peace that doesn't include Jerusalem as the capital of the State of Israel. I call on all countries that seek peace to join the United States in recognizing Jerusalem as Israel's capital and to move their embassies here. I share President Trump's commitment to advancing peace between Israel and all of our neighbors, including the Palestinians. 
This has been our goal from Israel's first day, and we will continue to work with the President and his team to make that dream of peace come true. I also want to make clear, there will be no change whatsoever to the status quo at the holy sites. Israel will always ensure freedom of worship for Jews, Christians, and Muslims alike. President Trump, thank you for today's historic decision to recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital. The Jewish people and the Jewish state will be forever grateful. And forever is true. Now, Marie Harf is on the Fox News Channel, I guess, as a um, regular contributor. Uh, but before that, she was a spokesperson for the Obama administration over at the State Department and elsewhere. And uh, here's what took place. She's questioned by Sandra Smith. Cut nine, go. What does this do for peace efforts in the Middle East, Marie? Well, I think it makes them almost impossible, and it makes the United States... So for eight years under Barack Milhouse Hussein Obama, eight years of capitulation, eight years of undermining the state of Israel, eight years of trying to uh, condemn the Prime Minister of Israel, eight years of appeasement. Uh, how far did those peace negotiations go, folks? They went nowhere. They didn't exist. Go ahead. Very difficult position, and to a lot of parties, including the Palestinians, we won't be able to play a negotiating role like we have for so long. Who are the Palestinians that we're negotiating with? Hamas? Fatah? They're both terrorist organizations. We know Hamas is. I mean, we've identified Hamas as a terrorist organization, which now gets some of its funding from Iran and Hezbollah. So we're not negotiating with the. I mean, I would actually like, to whom are the Israelis, with whom are they to negotiate? And if the Palestinians are each other's throats, Hamas and Fatah, and they really are, how's that supposed to work? And this uh, two states living side by side, sharing a common border. What's that, Hallmark? That's a joke. There's a common border right now with the Gaza Strip. There's a common border right now with southern Lebanon. There's a common border right now with Syria. How's that going? How's that working out? There's a common border on Jerusalem. Go ahead. There's a reason that presidents that, that both Brad and I worked for of both parties never took this step. Right. They lied to the American people. They ran for office. They said they would do this, and they didn't do it. So they lied to get elected. And they were wrong. They were wrong. Go ahead. Name a region that is already uh, under enormous pressure uh, and, and crisis right now. And there's a reason All right, also you're a rambling idiot. A rambling buffoon. Ladies and gentlemen, who's at war with whom right now in the Middle East? It's the Muslims killing the Muslims. It's the Arabs killing the Arabs. It's the Saudis... Well, it's more than that, too. It's the Iranians, the Persians, killing the Arabs. The Arabs killing Persians. But Muslims killing Muslims. So if there wasn't a single Christian human being in the Middle East, or if there wasn't a single Jewish human being in the Middle East, they'd still be killing each other. Tell me, how many Jews are there exactly in Iraq? A handful. In Syria, used to be a lot. A handful. In Yemen. A handful. How about Christians? A handful. 
They're not fighting over Jewish-occupied territory or Christian-occupied territory. And by the way, what's that all about? Judaism's birth is in the Middle East. Christianity's birth is in the Middle East. The third religion to come along, Islam, its birth is in the Middle East. So how can it be the right to return? Only Muslims, not Christians. Hey, do Christians have the right to return too? Do Jews have the right to return in Iraq, in Iran, in Syria, in Yemen, in Lebanon, in Egypt? Of course not. Marie Harf could barely control herself and was utterly and completely incoherent. Now there's some guy named Khalid El-Jindi, former Palestinian advisor. You see, MSNBC and CNN, that's just who they bring in primarily to comment. And then network news, like whatever crap I have to listen to at the top of the hour in my headphones, they're there. The Palestinians think and the Palestinian thinks. thinks. Cut 11, go. In terms of the options left uh, for response, uh, Mahmoud Abbas, what, what are him and, and his allies left to do now? Uh, well, I think they're... Hold on, what are him and his allies left to do now? Who is this fool asking the question? Do we know? No, it doesn't matter. Just say conga line and nitwits. Go ahead. Likely to see protests, uh, and it's important to point out that the Palestinian leadership uh, is not always in an ability to uh, prevent these protests. And, and no, no, no. They just called essentially for three days of rioting. They just called for three days of rioting. You know, they're not really in control of what goes on. They're in control of everything that goes on. They subsidize terrorism, and they punish those who don't play by their rules. Go ahead often directed, the anger is often directed at them, uh, which really, I think, speaks to the broader point here. Um, I, I think it's going to be very, very hard, if not impossible, for any Palestinian leadership uh, to return to an American-led peace process after something like this. Uh, you know, the, the United States... Wow, that American-led peace process, what, for 69 years? That is, that's been really swell. I'll be right back. Mark Lovin. It's a pleasure to have an old buddy, not that he's old, an old buddy on the program, John Bolton, former ambassador to the UN from the United States, among other things. How are you, John? Doing fine, Mark. How are you? I'm doing very well. So what do you make of the president's decision today? Why is it important? Well, it's an excellent decision, uh, long overdue, not uh, in his administration, but long overdue for the United States, that uh, recognizes reality, and namely that Jerusalem is Israel's capital, and uh, accordingly, that's where the United States embassy should be, not in Tel Aviv, but actually in the capital, uh, where the leaders of the country perform their official duties. Now, there's still some steps to be taken to make sure that the embassy is actually uh, built, a new one is actually built in Jerusalem and so on. And I think we've got to watch the State Department uh, very carefully over the next three years. There are very few people there in the bureaucracy that approve this decision. And if the president's not careful, three years from now, they'll still be doing site selection. So uh, still a lot to accomplish, but in political terms, uh, this is delivering on his campaign pledge uh, not to do what his predecessors have done, is 
promised to do something about moving the embassy, but then not carry through on it. Why do you think particularly Democrat members of Congress, including Dianne Feinstein, who actually voted for the statute in 1995, which compelled this, uh, why do you think they're now criticizing the president and saying they're very concerned about violence in the peace process? Why are they reversing course and flip-flopping? Well, it's hypocrisy. It's an easy vote for people in Congress to say they want the embassy moved there, and then when somebody finally does it, it's an easy move for them to criticize the president that makes the decision. Uh, and this is one reason why the framers of the Constitution were very careful to put primary responsibility for foreign policy in the executive branch, where you can actually make decisions and carry through on policy. Uh, look, those who, who say, oh, yes, well, we favor moving the embassy, just not now, uh, are, are following a, a fairly conventional diplomatic script, which is what it boils down to is not now means not ever. And so Trump has cut right through that. And uh, look, there'll be there'll be some troubles in the Arab world. There's no doubt about it. The radicals uh, have predicted there would be riots and demonstrations. And so accordingly, they will now have to produce riots and demonstrations. But the fact is, uh, this this pierces some illusions that people have had. You know, if Israel doesn't have a permanent capital in some people's minds, maybe it's not a permanent state. Well, we've just solved that problem, and, uh, you know, more will follow. It's also why the Europeans are upset with the United States, because uh, I know know we're all going to wring our hands over this. Now they've got to make some hard decisions about where they're going to put their embassies, too. So you think it's possible, whether it's Europe or some other countries in the world that haven't recognized this as uh, Jerusalem as Israel's capital and have their embassies elsewhere, you think it's possible some countries will follow suit now? Well, I think some may. I mean, I thought Trump gave a very carefully worded statement uh, uh, to avoid the argument that you're prejudging the outcome of the final status talks in Jerusalem. You know, all these years, nobody has ever said we were going to build an American embassy east of the Green Line, east of the 1949 Armistice Lines, 1967 Lines. Uh, so the, there's no doubt that this embassy will be built in a part of Jerusalem that Israel has held since independence and that no Palestinian has ever argued should be in a Palestinian state. They can still argue about uh, East Jerusalem uh, as, as long as they want to. This decision does not prejudice that, does not undercut the peace talks, uh, does not eliminate the United States as a force that might help uh, bring about a lasting peace. N- none of that would, was ever going to be sacrificed by moving the embassy. We have succumbed for too long to brute intimidation, to the threat of violence, if we did what is simply the natural thing to do, put your embassy in the capital of the country to which your diplomats are accredited. I want to play you a clip, if I might. Chris Matthews on The Morning Joe on today on MSNBC. Is that all right, sir? I think I can probably make my way through it. All right. <laughs> Cut eight. Go. Because if you don't give the uh, Palestinians hope that they can have national integrity and have a capital where they believe it should be, you're going to have an unending problem. By the way, deaths are coming now because of this. You can just bet in the next few weeks we're going to have hell to pay for this totally erratic decision by this president. Every party that's had the White House since 48 has recognized you have to be careful over there. I lived over there right up the Damascus Gate, right where that picture was. And I had to tell you, everything is intricate over there. Bethlehem is intricate with the Armenian church. 
and the, and the Catholic Church. Everything is intricate. The guys with the, the ultra-religious re- people uh, and the Jewish community and the Arab call to prayer, it's all intermingled and intricately combined. And to mess that up now makes no sense for anybody to do that. It's not in America's interests. And I don't know whose interest in Israel it is. I'll let you have a first bite at this. Uh, how would you respond to him? Well, there's so much that's wrong with that. It, it's hard to know where to begin. The, the fact is that the interest of the United States are served by having its diplomats uh, able to operate effectively and efficiently where the Israeli government is, and that's uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, the, the whole notion that somehow Jerusalem is special goes back to a U.N. General Assembly resolution in 1947 that uh, divided up uh, what was left of the British-Palestinian mandate and would have made Jerusalem uh, a completely separate city under U.N. control. So in 1948, when Truman recognized Israel, making the United States the first country to recognize Israel, he didn't say anything about Jerusalem because of that resolution. Uh, What Trump has done is demonstrate that resolution is a dead letter. Jerusalem is never going to be a city under U.N. control. And the whole idea that you can't talk about its status in any respect is just wrong. Trump did what any prudent president would do. He called Mahmoud Abbas, the leader of the Palestinians. He called King Abdullah, the king of the Jordanians. He called all the regional leaders. He called lots of people in Europe. Uh, He told them what was coming. He didn't do the most extensive thing he could have done, which is change the name on on one of our consulate facilities in Jerusalem now and call it an embassy. He's proceeding in a very deliberate fashion. Uh, The only uh, real opposition uh, to this move comes from people who just fundamentally don't accept the legitimacy of uh, the state of Israel. And how would this interfere with the intricate overlapping of holy sites and religious sites and so forth and so on. There's absolutely no change in the Israeli government's authority and management of this part of Israel. None. None whatever. This is a matter between the United States and Israel. I mean, what Mahmoud Abbas and the Turks and others who are critical of this deal are saying is, we get to tell the United States where to put its embassy in Israel. I mean, just think about that. Uh, uh, If somebody else tried to do that to us, if uh, the Russians said, well, you can't put your embassy in the United Kingdom in London because it would make us unhappy and we'll have three days of rage over it, we tell them to go pound sand. And yet for all these decades, we've, we've acquiesced in this threat of violence against innocent civilians in cities around the Middle East Uh, And I think that's given our enemies and Israel's enemies comfort. I think it's said to them, brute intimidation can work. And I think Trump has swept that aside today. Ambassador Bolton, excellent. I much appreciate what you had to tell the audience. And you take care of yourself. Okay, Mark. Take care. Be well. We'll be right back. most powerful conservative voice the mark levin show dial in now 877-381-3811 i'm in uh, let's see mo yeldon beats me anyway host on mslsd today 
Tell me, any pro-American or pro-Israel hosts on MSLSD? I can't think of one. Can you think of one? I can't think of one. How about on CNN? Not, I can't think of one. Can you think of one? No, I can't think of one. Israel's annexation of East Jerusalem. I guess they annexed it from Jordan, which seized it in 1948. And you have to understand, there are literally, what, dozens of nitwits watching MSLSD who have no knowledge of history of this area. So they get it from people like Eamon Moyeldon. Cut 10, go. Those who follow history, those who follow international law, those who pay tribute to the international legal order of the United Nations Security Council and what have you will tell you that the annexation of East Jerusalem, the unification of it, the way that Israel went about to uh, depopulate certain parts of East Jerusalem, move settlements... By the way, this is all heavy-duty Palestinian liberation organization, Palestinian Authority, Fatah, Hamas... Propaganda. This guy's reading right off the talking points. Go ahead. All of that was considered illegal under international law. So what Israel has been doing to the city of Jerusalem for decades uh, is a violation of multiple standing UN Security Council resolutions. It has. Now, I don't know who this idiot is, but fact of the matter is, let's say the UN passed multiple Security Council resolutions saying Washington is not our capital. Our sovereignty isn't determined by other countries or a collection of other countries at the U.N. Israel's capital isn't determined by the U.N., never has been, and it's never supposed to be. I don't know. Is anybody else's capital determined by the U.N.? Anybody else's sovereignty determined by the U.N.? No, it's not. It's not called the International Security Council, genius. It's the United Nations Security Council, by the way. Israel is depopulating certain parts of East Jerusalem. Israel is protecting all the people in East Jerusalem, regardless of who they are or the religion. All of them. Tell me, how many Jews and Christians can go into the Palestinian parts of Hebron? The second most important Jewish city. You may have heard of it. Hebron. Hebron, Hebrew, Hebron. Well, none. Jews and Christians are not protected in Palestinian parts. How about Bethlehem? Ever hear of Bethlehem? Who was born in Bethlehem? Anybody know? Well, who is it that the Palestinians control that town? Is that their town too? Under international... Security Council law? Is that their town too? What is it? The Christians were never in the Middle East? The Jews were never in the Middle East? Actually, the Jews and the Christians were first and second. Just pointing this out, because you'll never hear that on MSLSD or a constipated news station, CNN. You never will. You're never going to get a history lesson. You're going to get, oh my God, this is going to cause this and cause that, and why would Trump do this? I mean, every Republican and Democrat before them wouldn't do this and wouldn't do that. Very historic what was done. Very, very historic. And I can go through all these clown Democrats, these hypocrites, but they are revealing themselves. And that's a good thing. So are the media. MSNBC and CNN have now demonstrated that they are 
not just anti-Trump, not just anti-conservative. They're anti-Israel. Many of the Democrats in the Democratic Party, growing in numbers in terms of being anti-American and anti-Israel. The Bernie Sanders wing of the Democrat Party, if you will, which is a big and growing wing. You know, if you haven't finished shopping for the perfect gift for your friends and family, well, we've got the perfect gift idea for you over at CRTV.com. Through Christmas, hello, through Christmas, we've created some limited edition holiday mugs featuring your favorite show hosts on CRTV. You know, it's your chance to get my mug, as a matter of fact, on your mug. We wanted to say a special thank you to those who are signing up to support what we're doing at CRTV, Conservative Review TV. We couldn't do it without you. There's never been a better time to get CRTV. And if you've already joined, I want to thank you. You can gift a CRTV subscription to your friends and family. And you can then get the mug or give it to them or give it to somebody else. Everybody could use a little bit more of the truth, right? Truth at conservative principles. A little less from the lib media, I say. Give us a call right now. Our wonderful customer service staff, they're there. They'll tell you how to set things up, and they'll do it very, very quickly. Here's the number, 844-LEVIN-TV, 844-LEVIN-TV. Now, when you make that call, make sure you mention the code HOLIDAY. HOLIDAY. Promo code HOLIDAY. That way you get your free Levin TV mug. Free. It's a big mug, by the way. I don't mean my face. The mug. The mug is big. Levin TV mug. Or you could choose from any of the others. Uh, other hosts. Favorite CRTV show hosts and so forth. Again, that's 844-LEVIN-TV or visit levintv.com. L-E-V-I-N-TV.com or 844-LEVIN-TV. Promo code HOLIDAY. It's a lot of fun. We want you to join us. A lot of fun. Yesterday, I spent the entire program on Jerusalem before the president's announcement. Today, I spent the entire program on the tax issues that are coming to a head. I try and stay two, three days ahead what's taking place. We're going to take your calls, and we're going to discuss a few other things in the third hour. Over 10,000 texts between ex-Muller officials found after discovery of anti-Trump messages. This is a breaking Fox News report. That's a big deal. Looks like Al Franken is going to resign. And when you have a gaggle of Democrats in the Senate all acting together, all of a sudden, they were dragging their feet, give them due process. They all said the same thing. They had their talking points. They're sending it to the Senate Ethics Committee. Dick Durbin even said that Franken was being responsible. And now, all of a sudden, they're all coming out demanding his resignation. Even Schumer's demanding his resignation. What's that all about? That's politics. These people don't care about sexual harassment. You're passing anti-sexual harassment training information a week or two ago. A week or two ago, they knew what Franken was in the House. They knew all about Con. They've known all about these people. And there's more of them, too. There's no question in my mind. More on this the third hour, because they're up to something no good. It's not even about Roy Moore himself. You have to keep something in mind when you watch the Democrats operate, and now the media too. They're out to destroy Donald Trump. If they can't destroy him, they want to defeat him. Everything they do, whether it's immigration, whether it's taxes, whether it's spending, whether it's sexual harassment training, 
whether it's demanding the resignation of one of their own, whether it is condemning his foreign policy, which has been absolutely outstanding, absolutely outstanding, North Korea, Iran, Israel, absolutely outstanding, whatever it is, it's because they want to destroy him, and not because they don't like him. They used to like him, not because of his tweeting tendencies, and you know, that can annoy them, but because they do not like what he's doing, and they do not like the fact that their great, late Barack Milhouse Hussein Obama is not president through Hillary Clinton, his third term. They're furious about what's taking place. So this is not really even an attack solely on Trump. It's an attack on all of us. All of us. Let's take some calls. Brian, Baltimore, Maryland, the great WCBM. Go. Hey, Mark, how are you tonight? All right. Thank you, sir. Um, I wanted to say that I'm incredibly proud of our president tonight for the fact that he actually stood up and took a stand that nobody else, whether it was political expediency or just lack of courage, would actually make that stand in the previous administrations. And um, the fact, you know, you had a guy call last night and you said, you know, I'm a Christian and Christians understand that Jews are God's chosen people. You know, Christians are redeemed to God through Christ. So, you know, first the Jews, then the Gentiles, as Paul wrote in some of his letters. And, um, you know, the temple, as a, as um, uh, Ambassador Dormer was saying, the temple actually was the residing place of God on earth. Jerusalem is the eternal capital of heaven on earth. The new Jerusalem is spoken about in the Bible repeatedly. So the fact that we actually are taking a stand, which... By the way, the Palestinians mentioned? <laughs> well, as you very clearly laid out, um, Mohammed didn't show up on the scene until the 7th century, and the, the Jews were, what, in the Iron Age or the Bronze Age? That's um, correct. 3,000 B.C., so they um, just the intellectual dishonesty of people who want to take that stand, is, it just blows my mind. But the fact that we have a, um, a leader now who is standing up on our traditional Judeo-Christian values that this country was founded on, that we have gotten away from, which is actually, I think, what is causing the lack, the, the unraveling of the civil society, makes me very proud, and it gives me hope for the fact that you know there is a chance that you know we might actually turn around and, and get ourselves straightened out and do the right thing. And very, uh, very, well, Brian, I got to go, but very, very well said. Thank very, you. very well said. All right, thank you very much, Jim Paramus, New Jersey, the great WABC. Go. Mark, it's a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you. Mark, I am a right-wing Trump supporter. All right, supporter. you disagree with me on what? And I lived in Iran when I was a kid at the fall of the Shah. I love Israel. I would die for Israel. But I no, 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 no. I, you wouldn't die for Israel. Let's not overdo it. Go ahead. Attacked. I definitely would. And you know what? But I'm too old. But my 21-year-old son would probably be drafted in half if, if, if the Middle East erupts. I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop. Go ahead. But I think Netanyahu, the whole thing with like the settlements and things like that, he scares me more than Trump, and I love Trump, but I think they're a little volatile, and I'm afraid of what's, what's going to go on now. Let, let, me, let, me get, let me get this straight. You're a big Trump supporter, and yet Netanyahu scares you more than Trump. So Trump scares you, even though you're a Trump supporter, and Netanyahu scares you even more because of the settlements? Is that what you said? But, I'm when, sick and tired of calling these places settlements. Do you have any knowledge of Judea and Samaria? Do you know anything about that part of the world? Um, a, a basic... Why are they called settlements? 
I don't know. Well, why are they, do do indigenous people? Do you know why? You ever hear of Judea? Does it sound similar to Judaism and Jewish? Does that sound similar to you? It does. It definitely does. Judea. So we have Jewish settlements and occupied Judea, which belongs to the Palestinians, which before was controlled by the Jordanians. Now, does that make sense to you? You know what? You could look at what the Ottoman Turks did. I mean, that that whole part of the... I'm well familiar with the Ottoman Empire, which was uh, eliminated after World War One. But this has nothing to do with that. I can talk about the Babylonians if you'd like. I can talk about the Persians if you'd like. I can talk about the Greeks and the Romans if you'd like. But what is the one indigenous population that outlived Athens, that outlived Rome, that outlived the Babylonians? I'm not doing this in exact order. That outlived all of them. I, I agree. I agree. Who, no, no, who are they? Well, Mark, my whole The indigenous thing is... people, the Jews who were there. It, We're now told they're not allowed to be there. It is. No, 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 no you're not listening all... to me. It's not occupied territory. These aren't settlements. They may be the modern language of the U.N. and some of these countries in Europe and so forth, or the United States State Department. How can you be occupying territory, occupying and have settlements, that language, when your people have been there for 3,500 years? You're right. I see your point. I, I, and I, they, this whole debate over Jerusalem, you're never going to get the truth on MSNBC and CNN. It's filled with a bunch of sexual predators and drunks and liberals and morons. They're pushing an ideology. An ideology. I would be happy to debate any of these people on my turf, not their ridiculous turf. I watched this idiot, Nicole Wallace, today, a longtime Republican. She worked for George Bush. She worked in the McCain campaign. But she has sold her heart, soul, and brain, such as it is, to be a host on MSNBC. And you have Ron Dermer, the ambassador from Israel to the United States, coming on there. And she's trying to muck him up and tie him up in the Mueller case. These are morons. These are idiots. They have no context, no understanding of the history in this area. None. I don't pretend to be a really, really religious Jew. But that's my faith. And I do study the history, and I've been studying it more and more and more and more, because it's fascinating to me, absolutely fascinating. These idiots that go on cable TV and network and satellite TV and radio, they have no comprehension. They're illiterate on this subject. So they report, they burp up the talking points they hear. Do you think the news person, who I have to listen to in my headphones on network news, who's burping out the talking points of the Palestinians tonight, do you think this news person has any knowledge of what the hell they're talking about? Well, sir, uh, I want to thank you for your call. I guess I should thank you because essentially I called you. All right, Jim, I appreciate your call. I'm being told, get off, get off. We missed our deadline. I'll be right back. Mark Lovin. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, Donald Trump slurred his speech today, according to AOL.com, and it's really hot on Twitter right now. The media are sick. I mean, they're just sick. Nancy Pelosi's been slurring her speech for three years. With all her weirdo motions and actions, with the eyes and the face and the this and the that, 
Not a word. Hillary Clinton keeps falling and fall down, fall down, like a bag of potatoes. Ignore her, ignore her. Donald Trump gives a outstanding... What, do you notice? He's slurring. Oh, yeah, slurring, slurring. All right. Let's take a few more calls, shall we? Oh, wait a minute. I was just uh, admonished here. Let me find it. Yes. Simply safe, ladies and gentlemen. Getting a good night's sleep is easier said than done, especially if you hear a noise downstairs or a noise upstairs. What do you do in that situation? Well, you can turn on all the lights and keep watch. You can sleep with one eye open. That's kind of a pain. Or you can rest easy, knowing that your home and family are protected with Simply Safe. Each Simply Safe system is a complete security arsenal with motion sensors, glass break sensors, entry sensors, and a high-definition security camera, you'll have everything you need to keep your family safe. Order Simply Safe online in minutes. Have it on your doorstep this week. Set it up in under an hour. No tools, no hardwiring. Just open the box, plug it in. You'll be protected with professional home security. With Simply Safe, there's no contracts, no hidden fees, only the best cutting-edge technology. And 24-7 professional monitoring is just $14.99 a month. So get Simply Safe, get some rest. Go to simplysafemark.com and get a special 10% discount when you order today. That's simplysafemark.com for 10% off your order. Simplysafemark.com. Quickly, Larry, Long Island, the great WABC. One minute, go. Uh, thank you, Mark. Uh, the reality is that under Jewish rule of Israel, there will be gay rights, women's rights, Arab rights, Christian rights. I've been to Israel over 50 times, and when you go oh. to Jerusalem and you go to Hadassah Hospital, Muslim female doctors work next to Jewish male doctors. You have uh, uh, people of gay orientation working there. This would never happen under... No, it'll never happen. I'll tell you something else. I was at, hos- at a hospital near the border with Syria, and you know what took place there, Larry? Syrians were sneaking over the border into Israel to get medical treatment. And you know what happened when they snuck into Israel to get medical treatment, Larry? They got medical treatment. I don't think that happens the other way around, do you? Thank you for your call. We'll be right back. From the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hello, everybody. Mark Levin here. Our number, 877-381-3811, 877-381-3811. A little less than 25% of the House Democrats voted today to impeach Donald Trump. On a historic day like this, where Donald Trump did something he promised to do, that other presidents promised to do when they were running for office and never did, the Democrats, almost 25% of them, were voting to impeach Donald Trump. What has Donald Trump done exactly? Nothing. No high crimes and misdemeanors, as ambiguous as that is, There's nothing in the world he's done uh, that should result in impeachment. Now, you'll hear people blithely say, well, it's a political decision impeachment. That is a comment by people who fully 
who don't fully understand what the impeachment process is about. Of course, it's a political decision as opposed to a legal decision, but it comes down to a constitutional matter. So there is some substance and some history and some background in terms of what impeachment is supposed to be about. It's not supposed to be about, I don't like the outcome of the election, or he talks funny, or I think he's insane, and I don't like the way, uh, you know, he talks, does this, that. That's not a basis for impeachment. Never has been. Fifty-eight Democrats voted today to impeach the President of the United States. Keep an eye on this. I keep talking about it. It was a big, big story. Big, 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 as Ed Sullivan would say. Who's he? Forget it. Fox News, Jake Gibson, over 10,000 texts between ex-Mueller officials found after discovery of anti-Trump messages. Justice Department officials are reading through over 10,000, 10,000 texts between FBI officials Peter Stroke and Lisa Page. Fox News has learned after it emerged that Stroke, if that's how you pronounce it, was removed from special counsel Robert Mueller's Russia probe following the discovery of anti-Trump messages between them. Department of Justice officials told Fox News they are in the process of going through the texts so they can hand them over to the House Intelligence Committee. Now, Stroke, you remember this guy. He cheated on his wife, had an affair, uh, was pro-Hillary, anti-Trump, helped clear Hillary, helped launch the so-called Russia collusion investigation against Trump. Oh, that schmuck. Yes, him. Stroke, who was an FBI counterintelligence agency, had worked on the Mueller probe, but was reassigned to the FBI's Human Resources Department after the discovery of anti-Trump text messages with Page, discovered by the Inspector General, by the way, not by uh, Clouseau, the uh, Mueller, with whom he was having an affair. Page was briefly Mueller's uh, on his team, but since his return to the FBI. So they're going through 10,000 text messages. You know, ladies and gentlemen, I've known my wife for several years now. I don't think I have 10,000 text messages with her. 10,000? This guy's on the public payroll. What the hell could be they be texting back and forth and back and forth? I guess we're going to find out, aren't we? Now, a dear friend of mine, and I don't have his uh, okay to mention him, and it's not that it's secret, I just didn't get it. He said to me, you know, there's, or has said, or has written, it's not really a big deal that a, a prosecutor or an investigator has strong political beliefs and even voices them in a text to a girlfriend or a wife or, or a friend and so forth. That's okay. As long as when they do the job, it doesn't influence them. But isn't that the point? If they do the job and it does influence them, if there's disparate treatment between how you treat a Clinton case versus a Trump matter, then it does become relevant. Your mindset, what motivates you, then it does become relevant. Because it is your mindset and it is what motivates you. If you're doing a professional job as well as you can, and you're leaving your politics behind, even though you've expressed it here and there, that's fine. Now, there's also a significant appearance problem. I can tell you when I was chief of staff to the Attorney General of the United States and at the Department of Justice, everybody knew I was a Reagan Mies appointee. Everybody knew my, basically, my philosophy. I would never and never did interfere with a criminal investigation. Never. 
because it would be improper. It would be inappropriate. So when the people who are conducting the investigation not only reveal their politics to another person, but likely act on their politics, that's a different question. Now, I suppose we could wait around for more information to come out. The problem with that is Mr. Mueller has done a cover-up job and an obstruction job when it comes to Congress trying to get to the bottom of this FBI agent and his conduct. They've done exactly the same thing when it comes to Fusion GPS, the extent to which this particular FBI agent or anybody else, including James Comey, used political Democrat Party Hillary campaign opposition research involving the Kremlin through different levels of protection to instigate or trigger an FBI investigation. These are very, very important questions, are they not? And Mr. Mueller has demonstrated himself to be tone-deaf, if not worth, a partisan hack. He hires this guy Weissman, Andrew Weissman, who is a partisan hack. He's thrilled that the Obama holdover at the Department of Justice, thrilled that she does her uh, swan song with her uh, drama act about uh, how she will not defend the president's executive order, the second iteration of which was upheld by the United States Supreme Court 7-2. And I believe the first iteration would have been 7-2. So Weissman was applauding Yates, the Obama holdover, who refused to, up, to even argue for, advocate for the president's position, which was supported by the Constitutional Office of Justice, the Office of Legal Counsel. So Weissman, who's out there looking for anybody who may have tripped, was thrilled that an Obama holdover would undermine a legitimate constitutional presidential act. So yes, antenna go up. With respect to Mueller, that's his trusted deputy. He was his general counsel when he was the FBI director. And there are others on his team who are heavy-duty political partisans, including with their contributions. Including with their contributions. So I find it perfectly legitimate and, in fact, necessary to call these people out and to put pressure on getting more information about them. That's how I feel, anyway. There's a great piece in the New York Post, great piece by Paul Sperry, double-crossing FBI agent must be held accountable. And I'll just start it. You can, you can look at it yourself. FBI investigator Peter Stroke, S-D-R-Z-O-K. I've called him three different names because I don't know how to pronounce a name that literally has uh, four consonants in a row. I'm not picking on it. I just don't know how to do it. S-D-R-Z-O-K. Strozak? Not only let Hillary Clinton off the hook... He may have used Democrat Party opposition research, we just talked about that, as an excuse to spy on the Trump campaign and his advisors. Stroke became such a political liability, special counsel Mueller had to boot him off the Russia case. Where he worked for nearly three months, Mueller made the move after the Justice Department's inspector general pointed out text messages in which which he sent to his mistress, who also worked for Mueller, exhibiting a strong anti-Trump pro-Clinton bias. His misconduct has sent shockwaves through Washington, not through all of it, unfortunately, because in July 2016, just days after closing the Clinton email case, he led, which he led, the same FBI agent signed the document that opened the investigation into possible collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia. His fingerprints are all over both cases, one widely criticized as a whitewash, the other condemned by the president, many as parties of which, and we've talked about this. Potentially more disturbing 
is Strozok's possible role in what many see as even a bigger scandal, the weaponizing of U.S. intel against political opponents. Now, who raised that? Hello? Did he also sign documents asking a federal court to allow FBI to spy on Trump's advisors? It's a critical question because a so-called FISA document authorizing agents to monitor the communications of Trump advisor Carter Page, for one, reportedly was based at least in part on anti-Trump Russia propaganda promulgated in that Fusion GPS dossier underwritten by the Clinton campaign. A partisan smear sheet that the FBI and Mueller have nonetheless used as a roadmap in the Russia probe. In a Washington Post, or excuse me, in a Post interview, Page said he suspects that would be the New York Post. Strozok, as the FBI's number two counterintelligence official, was also involved in applying for and obtaining the secret surveillance warrant on him, Page, from the Vice Court in September 2016. According to an in-depth New York Times retrospective published earlier this year detailing the FBI's two campaign investigations, Clinton subcontractor Christopher Steele briefed the FBI leadership about the findings in his new, now discredited dossier in August 2016. Weeks later, the information landed, quote, with Mr. Strozok and his team. And it goes on. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the scandal of scandals. I've been saying this and saying this over and over again. This is a massive, massive scandal. The Praetorian Guard media are trying to run interference for Obama and the Democrat Party and the Hillary campaign. They're trying to run interference for Comey and Mueller because these are key players, particularly Comey. Particularly Comey. I'll be right back. Mark Lovin. couple of special guests on the program who've written a very, very compelling book, Let Trump Be Trump. We used to say that about Reagan when the uh, libs kept trying to interfere with him. The inside story of his rise to the presidency. Corey Lewandowski, David Bossy. I've known Bossy for, what, 30 years maybe? Lewandowski, <laughs> yeah, I don't really know that years, well. Mark. How long is it? About 25 years, yep. 25 years? Well, you don't look a day over, whatever. And uh, <laughs> Lewandowski, I think we've talked a couple of times. How are you? I'm doing great, thank you. It's a pleasure to be on with you. Well, now you can have a real audience. I know you've been bouncing around radio and some of the cable shows, but this is a big audience. So, I'm interviewing you as a guy who backed Ted Cruz in the uh, Republican primaries. It was a close call for me, but I backed Cruz. And, uh, you know, I had talked to Trump before I backed Cruz, and we were quite friendly after I backed Cruz. That stopped, of course. Although I saw him the other week, and he couldn't have been better, couldn't have been nicer. Here's what I got out of my meeting with President Trump. He was extremely inquisitive. He asked me about judges. He asked me what I thought about the tax bills. He asked me on and on and on. Did he do that sort of thing during the campaign, as you write here? You know, what we talk about in Let Trump Be Trump is... Donald Trump, the candidate, learned as he did interviews and learned from asking people questions. And his debate prep, which we talk about, was not a typical debate prep riddled with paperwork and he would go through voluminous stories. He just wanted to talk to people because that's how he learns. And he would ask people their opinions. 
he would then incorporate everything people told him, and he'd be able to go out on that debate stage and dominate in the primaries. You know, you think about what uh, we do on the immigration issue, particularly in the primary, calling Ann Coulter, bringing Stephen Miller to the campaign, who used to be over at Jeff Sessions' office, saying that the immigration plan that Donald Trump put together was driven by Ann Coulter at the time. She called it the greatest document since the Magna Carta. I don't disagree with her. I thought it was pretty good because I was the old part of that. And, and it was a hard-line stance that nobody else was willing to take, and he got to that position, not just because of where he was fundamentally, but because the people around him were telling him this was where the future of it, things were going, and he knew that that was right. And Dave, this is a great point. And Dave Bossy, we look at what the president did today. Isn't that also based on listening to people, as as uh, Corey just mentioned, listening to people, experts on this, people he trusts, and just saying, you know what, I'm going to make the right decision about this. Without question, you know, Mark, for the last, you know, 30 or 40 years, every president has said, let's recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Let's move our, uh, our embassy there. And nobody has ever done it once they become president. Even Gerald Ford campaigned on it. And so this president, a promise made and a promise kept, and that's what he's about. And sure, certainly he's interested in doing it the right way and giving his diplomats time and Israel time to to be able to manage that process, which is going to take potentially a couple of years. But it is an important symbolic effort that he said, I'm going to stand tall and do the right thing. Now, a campaign day, what was a typical campaign day? I get the sense, certainly out of your book, and I get the sense as, as a pedestrian spectator here, that this is a very different man. In other words, he may not stick to a specific schedule. I don't mean being on time. I think he is. I mean, he just doesn't run campaigns like other people run campaigns, and he's not necessarily following the hierarchy of the campaign structure. Is that correct? Mark, in, in, in our book, what we did is we articulate what the president did each day, how his schedule, it was a grinding schedule. This guy literally has a motor, even though it's run on fast food, which we talk about in the book. Hey, there's nothing wrong with that. No, 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 not at all. But the mainstream media's heads explode when we talk about him eating McDonald's and, and pizza and Kentucky Fried Chicken. But yeah, right. what we, what we, he has a motor that just runs and it runs every day, uh, morning till night. He never stops, and that's why we ate fast food because we were always on the move. But. The reason he beat crooked Hillary Clinton, the reason that he took it to her was that he outworked her. He put his shoulder to the grindstone, and we did three events, four events, six events a day in different time zones across the country. And we were going to battleground states that she never went to. She forgot where Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin were. And we kept going there over and over. And this guy's schedule, we would, just in the last week of the campaign, Alone in, in November, we did like 35 events in the last six days of the event, of the campaign. It was an amazing schedule and it killed most of us. Now, Corey, um, there was a point at which you were separated from the campaign, correct? Oh, there was. Yeah, we call that being fired in the business. <laughs> <laughs> so, I was trying to be nice. All right, so you were, you were fired. Tell us about that. Tell us how you felt. And yet you're still friends with the president. 
well, you know, Mark, I gave up a big part of my life, uh, my kid's life, because my kids are real young. They only go from 6 to 10 years old right now. And I'd been on the campaign at that point for about a year and a half, and I left when they were really, you know, between the age of 4 and, and 8 years old. And the day I was fired, it was June 20th of 2016. I had helped shepherd the campaign through uh, the, the primary process where we won 38 times, and my candidate helped uh, you know, I helped get more votes than any candidate in the history of the Republican Party. And I thought we had done a pretty good job. But we were going into a phase of the campaign that was now focused on the delegate selection process. And quite candidly, uh, Ted Cruz's operation, as it came to that, was so exceptional with Ken Cuccinelli and his team that they knew the delegate selection process better than most. And we brought in a relic of the old days. You remember a guy by the name of Paul Manafort, who you know was what? who was before the fax machine. You remember that yes. came out? Yes. And you know what? What Paul was brought in to do was to make sure that Donald Trump's delegates that he had won were actually secured and voted for him at the convention. And the decision was made that I was no longer going to be capable to manage the campaign. All right, stop right there. I know you have a busy schedule. Can you guys hold on a little bit? Of course. For you, anything. Anything? Okay. We'll be right back with Lewandowski. Boss, you know it's not a law firm. They wrote a great book. Let Trump be Trump. I'll be right back. Mark Levin, America's tyranny hunter. Call in now, 877-381-3811. It's that time of year again when the days are shorter. Don't waste your precious daylight sifting through a sea of search results when looking for the right business software. Go home on time tonight with Captera.com. You know, whether you're a startup looking to keep better track of customers, a nonprofit hoping to have a record fundraising year, or a business that simply needs better payroll software, you need software, and Captera's got you covered. Search Captera's 400 categories of software uh, and discover the right tool for your business. Anything from email marketing to scheduling to accounting and beyond. Captera makes it easy to find what you're looking for. Captera has thousands of ratings and reviews from actual software users just like you. Best of all, using Captera is absolutely free. 2018, well, it'll be here before you know it. So make sure you've got the software your business needs today to help you do what you do better. Join the millions who use Captera. That's Captera, C-A-P-T-E-R-R-A dot com slash Levin. Captera dot com slash Levin. The book is Let Trump Be Trump. I think it's number one nonfiction on Amazon right now where we want to keep it. And the authors, uh, Corey Lewandowski and Dave Bossy. I want to ask you guys, you write about this, but, you know, for the purposes of uh, explaining this, I want to ask you guys about election night. It's about 6 p.m., 7 p.m., 8 p.m. Let me start with David. You getting a sense for what's going on? You're not sure? How are you feeling? Actually, Mark, what we found, uh, it, you know, and, and we detail, uh, the first chapter in the book, Let Trump Be Trump, is election night, because we wanted to start right there and give people the detail of it. And at 5.01, I got a phone call from somebody at ABC News, a longtime friend of mine, uh, Chris Blasto at ABC News. He's a senior producer there giving me the early exit consortium numbers, 11 states, the consortium, all the networks were covering with exit polls. And I took those numbers down. We were down in eight states, 
up in two and tied in one of the 11. We were getting killed. And when I say we were down in eight, we were down six to eight points in every one of them. There just aren't enough votes to come back from that. So we, I go and tell, I tell, I go to Steve Bannon, I tell him, I tell Jared Kushner, and I tell Ryan Priebus. The four of us are together. I, we go through the numbers. Jared tells Mr. Trump, the candidate, that we're in for a long, bad night. The numbers aren't coming in pretty good. And so we're, we're, we're all a little down in the mouth. And as I'm looking at these numbers, I see the state of Colorado. And I, I, as I read it the fourth time, it dawns on me that Colorado is an all-mail-in ballot state, 100%. How could they have exit polls? So... I, I call my guy at ABC, I call my friend at ABC, and he sends me the email that he had received. And in there, there's an asterisk. And on the states, most of the states had asterisks, which were partial exits, partial phone polls over the last couple of days. And Colorado was 100% uh, a phone poll, and it was done over three days before the election. The numbers were garbage. So we got back to business. We got the, the campaign had turned into a morgue over that 30-minute period. And so we had to get everybody back to work. Uh, and the, we, we notified uh, Mr. Trump that the numbers weren't very good. And then as the night went on, 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, as the numbers were coming up on the big screens, and we were getting data from our people on the, in the states. Uh, we knew we were on to something. And then when they called Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin, of course, they didn't do that until really late. Kellyanne Conway's phone rang when we were standing in the, in the president's uh, kitchen, and they called the race. And it was unbelievable. We, 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 we just couldn't believe uh, that – one month ago, we had been counted out. One month ago, nobody, after the Billy Bush tape, people were saying he should drop out of the race. And one month later, we were able to come back to the biggest victory and defeat crooked Hillary. Corey, what's your recollection of 5, 6, 7 p.m.? I was uh, unfortunately on CNN at the time, and I was on the set when the first polling results came in like Dave, and everybody there except me was very gracious and magnanimous, as you can imagine, Mark. They were so complimentary of the great race we were in. You know, they told us how Hillary was going to win in the greatest landslide ever and uh, that Trump was a loser. And, you know, the joy inside that uh, hold room and that newsroom was, you know, it was euphoria. And by about 9 o'clock at night, and look, I don't know much, but I know how to add. I started seeing the numbers adding up, and Trump's going to win Florida and North Carolina, Ohio, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Iowa. That euphoria went to sheer dread, and people were crying inside. Oh, my God, my life is ruined. And, you know, I was personally attacked that day on TV that Donald Trump won and that we had ruined our country. But the greatest part, and I write about this in the book, Dave and I articulate this so much in Let Trump Be Trump. I don't speak to the president that night because he's surrounded by hundreds of people, and I'm in Washington, D.C., and I get on an early flight, and I fly to New York, and I'm literally in a bathroom of a hotel trying to put some clean clothes on because I've been in the same clothes for about 40 hours, and my phone rings, and I look at it, and it says, Donald J. Trump. And I, and I'll, you know, I will spare our listeners the exact language that we use, but I say, Yes, Mr. President. That's the first time I speak to the president-elect of the United States. It's 7 a.m. the next morning, and he says, Corey. And I say, sir, did you hear what I just said? You are the president-elect of these United States of America. And he said to me, can you believe it? And I said, no, I can't. He said, me neither. And he said, but I started this thing. It was me and you and an airplane, and that's all we had. 
And I'll tell you, Mark, for a guy who grew up in Lowell, Massachusetts, uh, without any wealth or privilege or special things, to now know that a friend of mine has become the president-elect of the United States of America, and he called me to thank me. Uh, it is so detailed in the book. I have to talk about it because it was such a touching thing. It, you know, I, I think we changed America for the better, and we got rid of the Clinton cabal, I hope, once and for good. The book is Let Trump Be Trump. It is a fascinating you know, eyewitness, first-hand account of what took place in what has to be one of the most amazing campaigns in American history. Now, not to bore you guys, Mr. Producer is my witness. I watched a lot of campaigns. I was involved in the Reagan campaigns, and I was watching these results. And I didn't have the early, you know, whatever it is. And I'm looking at these numbers. And I said, what did I say to you, Rich, my producer, at 8.40 p.m., and I leave the air at 9 p.m.? What did I say to you? I said, I think Trump's going to win this thing. Because she's not pulling enough numbers in these so-called battles. She's just not piling them up. And he's hanging on and hanging on with 2% ahead, 3% ahead, 25% of the vote. And I said, son of a gun's going to win. That's what I told Mr. Producer. So, Dave Bossy, next time call me. Don't call your ABC friend. <laughs> Absolutely, Mark. You All right, look- let me ask you a question. A lot of people want to know when you have co-authors. How do two people write a book like this? Do you write some and the other one writes some and you share it and you go back and forth? How do you do this? You, you know what we did? Uh, we sat together in a room, uh, and we had a, uh, a a professional writer help us do just that. Because our first draft, when we did it, we tried to go back and forth in our voices, one chapter by Dave, another chapter by Corey. And to be honest with you, it just didn't work. It didn't flow well. So we finally put it in a kind of a third-person voice. Uh, and we wrote it in a linear fashion. Look, I introduced, I was introduced to Mr. Trump, uh, by the pre- to the president in 2010 and, and I got to know him over the years because I was raising money for Children's Hospital in Washington DC where my son had heart surgery. And, I, uh, you know, Mark, Mark knows all about this, but my son had four brain surgeries and two heart surgeries. Unbelievable. And- and we wanted other kids to be able to have the same opportunity at, at, at phenomenal health care that my child had. So we were just raising money. And Donald Trump, uh, Steve Wynn introduced me to him. Steve Wynn, my friend from Las Vegas, introduced me to Donald Trump. And Donald Trump, without any fanfare, without any press, didn't even know me very well. But in 2010, he started helping me raise money for Children's Hospital and did it for years. And with, he just did it because he's a kind gentle, uh, a very gracious man who takes care of his friends. And and he just has become a very good friend of my son's, uh, who's now 14 and in great health. But that's how I got to know him. And I, and I introduced him to Corey. And I introduced him to Steve Bannon and many of the others that are around him. But I... When when the president called me and asked me for a campaign manager, no other person came to mind but Corey Lewandowski. And so I introduced him to Corey in April of 2014. And he got the job in December of 2014 and took the campaign over, the, you know, a few days later in January of 2015. So we've been through the entire campaign, and that's why we wrote this book, because we were, we were together, um, well, he, we cover the entire campaign, Corey from the beginning of the campaign and me in the general election. And it really was a great marriage, and I, I think it's a great read. I hope people will enjoy it. And I'll tell you, I've, I'm enjoying it. I haven't finished it. I'm about two-thirds of the way through. I'm enjoying this very much. I don't care if you're a so-called nationalist populist. 
a conservative, a Reaganite, a whatever, you're going to like this book because it's factual. It's telling you how they rent. But it was quite a roller coaster, wasn't it? Emotionally, it, 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 Trump is, is, is a very emotional guy on top of everything else, isn't he? Well, he is, and and Corey, Corey will tell you a story. But you know, we um, we as the staff, you had to have you know a pretty uh, you know tough skin, skin. because yeah. he would we, we we termed it the staff turned to getting your face ripped off. Uh, and and look, the president is an is a great guy to be around, but he's a perfectionist. He wants everything to be exactly right. And so when we as staff failed him. Uh, you know, it's, it, you know, you take your lumps, but it made us better at, uh, at it and it made us better people. Uh, and I think, uh, I think that, you know, we are, we got a chance to see an incredible roller coaster and the presence of an amazing guy. One, one minute he's on you, but he's still your friend. You know, Mark, and I'll tell you this, I had my face ripped off many times by the candidate because I failed him. His microphone didn't work or something wasn't right. But the next day he's calling, hey, Corey, can I call you kids? Can I tell them how hard you're working? Can I be? Th- can I let your wife know how grateful I am? He's always so magnanimous, and he's always so gracious, and he always knows how important things are that you are missing and sacrificing to be next to him. And that is why, even after I was fired, I said I'm going to do everything humanly possible to make sure you are elected president of the United States. And I, you know, Dave and I are just so grateful uh, that we had a small role in it. Well, you had a big role in it. Both of you, and you succeeded. And thank God you did, that Hillary Clinton is not president. And I think this is why Donald Trump is under constant assault, no matter what he does. He's done nothing, nothing that uh, that should result in this kind of uh, vitriol against him. And I'll tell you why I think. Not only didn't they expect him to win, they wanted Hillary to carry out Obama's third term. And you guys, really a little ragtag team at, at first, and, you know, on, on a tight budget, you guys were supposed to get slaughtered, and you weren't, and you beat them. And this book is absolutely fascinating. You tell us how you did it. Mark, we were the island of misfit toys. We talk about it in the book. It was Corey Lewandowski and Dan Scavino and Hope Hicks and Keith Schiller, the body man, for 19 years. And we started to build the team. But, you know, when I took the job with Donald Trump and I talk about it in the book, my friends told me you'll never work again. And the friends I called and said, would you come work for me? They laughed in my face. And you know what now? They think I'm the human resources department for the federal government because everybody yeah. wants a job. And, uh, you know, the, the president is much more gracious than I have been in victory. He deserves all the credit. He gets 99.9%, and Dave and I and, and the rest of the team had a .01%, but he is so gracious, and that's why he's so successful. That's why he'll get his legislative priorities done, and that's what this book is about, is the real man, the real person that the media doesn't want to talk about. Let Trump be Trump is who Donald Trump really is. Good days, bad days, but a man who's driving hard to save his country because it was about to go to peril. Well, we're out of time, unfortunately, but I want to stress to my audience, this is a fascinating book. I know you're going to enjoy it. I'm really enjoying it. Let Trump Be Trump by uh, Corey Lewandowski and David Bossie. It's not your typical book where people on the outside are writing about Trump. These guys were witness to a presidential victory, which very few people get to experience. And they worked with an absolutely fascinating human being, which you guys are, too. So... Folks, I got it linked on my social sites, Mark Levin Show Facebook, Mark Levin Show Twitter. It's up on my radio site homepage, Mark Levin. What the hell is that called, anyway? I don't even know. 
Mark Levin Show what? Oh, MarkLevinShow.com. I remember. MarkLevinShow.com. You can get it at Amazon.com, any major bookstore. Thanks for coming on, guys. Much appreciated. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for having us, Mark. All right. Take care of yourselves. I know that website. MarkLevinShow.com. That's the radio website. Folks, you're going to love this book. I'm not just hawking it. I'm telling you, you're going to love this book. I got an early copy of it, and I kept my mouth shut. And uh, they asked me for a blurb on the back, which I gave them, and I see Hannity did, and Gingrich, and Ingram, too. Uh, I was not part of this campaign in any respect. I learned a hell of a lot in this book, and it's absolutely fascinating. I'll be right back. Mark Lovin. Do you believe these idiots at the NFL extended Roger Goodell's contract? They extended the guy's contract. I, I don't get it. I really don't get it. I don't get these billionaires. There's a few of them I do get who are solid, but the rest of them? Who the hell would keep, it, in essence, a CEO who is destroying your business? Who doesn't know how to handle these things? except to throw millions and millions of dollars at, at them. Social uh, Warrior Fund, or whatever they call it. Just pathetic. Well, it's their business. It ain't mine. They can do whatever they want. You know, Uber disclosed a breach of 57 million passengers and drivers' records. Hackers access personal information like names and driver's license numbers, email addresses, phone numbers of passengers... This breach was just recently announced. This personal information was actually stolen over a year ago. If you're only monitoring your credit, your identity can be stolen in ways you may not detect. Good thing there's LifeLock. LifeLock detects a whole wide range of identity threats, threats you may miss by just monitoring your credit, like someone stealing from your 401k or committing a crime in your name. And if there's a problem, a U.S.-based identity restoration specialist will work to fix it. No one can prevent all identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses. But LifeLock can help you see more threats to your identity. Go to LifeLock.com or call 1-800-LIFELOCK. Use promo code LEVIN, that's L-E-V-I-N, for 10% off your LifeLock membership. LifeLock.com or 1-800-LIFELOCK. Save 10% now with promo code LEVIN. By the way, here it is, what is it, December 6th? Now's the time to be thinking of Hanukkah gifts and Christmas gifts. You know, books are great gifts. I'm quite serious. I just want to speak up for all those authors out there and publishers out there. Books are great gifts. They're relatively inexpensive, aren't they? They're relatively inexpensive. You can get a really good book for $20, $25, $29, $30. And it consumes, you know... A lot of time for somebody to read. It's very entertaining, can be educational, can change your life. Books still are great gifts, and there's a lot of them out there. I want to encourage you to look at one author in particular, and then a book in particular. If you have little ones, I want you to take a look. Go to Amazon and type in my father's name, Jack Levin. His books on Lincoln, 
on the Delaware crossing, on Proverbs, on Spot. They are absolute classics, and they are beautiful gifts, and they are inexpensive. Now, if you're not of that age, I hope you'll seriously consider rediscovering Americanism as a gift. It's very well priced on Amazon, and it is a a really, really cool gift. And if somebody actually reads it, they're going to learn a ton. Let me just suggest that to you. Ladies and gentlemen, we salute our armed forces, police officers, firefighters, and emergency personnel, and the President of the United States for his historic act tonight. Amen to him. Check out Levin TV. I'll see you tomorrow.